welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Today we're in Psalm 121, a special message that I'm bringing to you about how to press on in life. So let us hear together the Word of God. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. The psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's perfect word. May encouragement flow from it to our hearts today. Father, thank you for this wonderful psalm written by an unknown believer who was on the same journey we are through an uncertain world to a longed for heavenly city. Speak to us through his words because they are your words. Speak to us deeply, Holy Spirit, you who do all things well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, a special message today because we're still journeying through a season, aren't we? It's unusual. It's a season both of uh, uncertainty because of the COVID environment, although there are some... uh, Dimensions of light that may be arriving there, praise the mercy of God. But there are also social events that are happening that don't necessarily have an end point. There are things happening in our broad society, change, that's not always what a believer's heart would welcome. There are political movements and social angers and other things that we see developing that we have not seen at this level in our lives. And there's no predicting where those things are going to go through. So it's a season that we're journeying through and only God knows the outcome of it. When you go through times like this, there are challenges to your faith that seem to be deeper and different. God uses events like these unusual times to drive us into learning how to trust him more in a deeper way. Praise his name for that. That's what he's all about. But there are also different experiences that we're now having that we haven't walked through quite before. And so we have to learn about how God keeps us through them. Times like this create questions that I, I, I have in my own soul and that I hear from people as I interact all week long. A couple questions. Can I really keep trusting God This seems to have gone on a long time. Yes, I see things that might be positive and changing, but can I continue 
to endure and trust God. Another one is, will he really care for me? There's so many things that are happening out there that are different. They feel like threats that I've never thought of before to my children, my family, my faith. Will he really care for me? And you know, being cared for in life is, uh, well, it's an uncertain proposition because the only ones to care for us in this world on the visible level are other flawed people like us. The more you know of yourselves, the least you'd probably put yourself in charge of anything, if you're honest. You know, being in the hands of people in a perilous situation can be a little nerve-wracking. There's a story of a monastery in Portugal. I've told you this, I think, in the past. In fact, I know I have. It was a monastery that apparently was perched on a 3,000-foot-high cliff to get away from it all. And the only way you could get up to the monastery was getting into a basket, and it was hooked over a rope, and the monks at the top of the 3,000-foot clip would pull the rope through a pulley, and you would just kind of swing in that basket all the way up that 3,000-foot climb until the monks pulled you up the edge of the cliff. Now, there was, strangely enough, a crazy American tourist who actually wanted to visit the monastery, and he was willing to get up into the basket. And so... He got into the basket and the the monks up at the top started pulling through the pulley and he started going out and he started swaying and kind of holding on to the edge of that basket. About halfway up where he had 1,500 feet to look straight down and 1,500 feet up into the mist to see where he needed to go, the basket was swaying and then he noticed something. He noticed that the rope was starting to get a little worn. And in fact, the, the farther he went up and the higher up he went, he noticed that the rope was actually getting frayed. Well, he had no choice. He'd made the commitment. And so he just holds on to the swaying basket. And fortunately, they got him up to the top and the monks pulled the basket over the edge and he got out and breath dusted himself off and breathed a huge sigh of relief. Then he sees the monk in charge up there, standing there, ready to welcome him. And the guy says, well, the the tourist says, that was quite the trip. I wasn't sure I was going to make it right around the middle there. I mean, did you guys notice that the rope in the middle is pretty frayed and worn out? He says, do you mind if I ask you a question? The head monk says, no. And he says, how often do you change the rope? The monk shrugged and said, well, whenever it breaks. (laughs) Aren't you glad God doesn't take care of you like that? After the oops, he doesn't take care of you and I like that. On an uncertain journey into the mists of a place you've never been before, our God holds you and cares for you in ways you can't imagine. Not like people would. So the point of the psalm, as we're going to study it, is that on the uncertain journey of life, there is a God who cares for us and protects us like no other. Now, to understand how to trust him, you need two things. You need the right perspective on life and the right perspective on God. And those are the two big parts of my preaching today. Hopefully easy to follow as I try to be. So let's take a look, first of all, at the right perspective on life. And that's verses 1 and 2 of this unusual psalm. It's unusual because it has a title on the top, A Song of Ascents. 
Ascents means ascending a height or going to altitude or climbing a mountain, going up in height, a song of ascents. Now you notice if you look at your Bibles, and by the way, get your Bibles out, please, your paper Bibles or your digital Bibles, however you like. You notice in all the Psalms around it, from Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 134, they all have the title at the top, a song of ascents, of rising, of climbing. Why is that? Well, they are all a gathered group of Psalms, there's 15 of them, and they were all designed to be sung by people from Israel who were journeying to one of the three feasts or festivals that God told the people of Israel to attend every year in the, in the capital city, Jerusalem. There were three feasts, feasts rather, <laughs> festivals or feasts. Uh, there was the Feast of Tabernacles. There was the uh, Feast of Weeks. And then the most famous and the most important in the eyes of an Israelite, if they could only go to one that year, they had to go to this one, the Feast of Passover. The journey to this to Jerusalem to, take, to go to any one of these feasts often could take up to two weeks. Hence, there's 15 songs. One for every night of the journey, if you had the longest journey, and one to sing the day you'd arrived. Now, Dr. Merrill Unger talked about these and in his Old Testament commentary, and he noted that Psalm 121 was sung on the last day before you entered into the city of Jerusalem. It's interesting. You can see Psalm 122 that follows it was actually sung the day you'd arrived in Jerusalem. Psalm 121 or 122 verse 2 says, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. They're all excited to get there. So each of these Psalms was to be sung around the campfire of the journeying Jewish people each night on their journey to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. Got the picture? Jesus in his earthly life sang these Psalms. He sat next to Joseph and Mary as a 12-year-old, for example, in Luke 1 and 2, and he must have sung Psalm 121 on the night before they entered Jerusalem. He must have sung them all, memorized them all. Of course, he also wrote them all, but anyway, as God. So that's kind of the context for this. And the context is important because the context teaches us the first thing I want you to know. And that's the right perspective on life. There are two things about the right perspective on life that I think this psalm teaches. The context teaches us the first one, and then verses 1 and 2 teach us the second. So follow with me. The first thing about the right perspective on life, you understand, is taught from the context, and that is this. Life is a long walk to heaven. That's what the Christian life is. That's the life of the believer. It is a long walk to heaven. Think about it. Three times a year, God wanted to make an indelible point to his people. Three times a year, one time Passover for sure, I want you to stop everything in your life. I want you to put the business on hold, close the business. I want you to take a leave from your job. I want you to set aside money. I want you to gather food. I want you to get the whole family together. And I want you to take a long journey from wherever you are in Israel. High north or the desert east, it doesn't matter. And I want you to take a long journey. It's a journey in which you're going to go higher and higher every day. Why is that true? Because Jerusalem, if you've been there, you know it's on a high level of land. In fact, you have to go up through hills through any direction, north, south, east, or west, if you're arriving in Jerusalem. It's a city on a hill. It's 
the highest point in that region. And so whenever a Jew said, I'm going to Jerusalem, he never said, I'm going to Jerusalem. He always says, I am going up to Jerusalem. And this was all designed by God, in my opinion. I'm preaching my opinion now. So listen anyway. I'm preaching my opinion. (laughs) God designed an experience for them. Three times a year, they were to set aside their secular life, take a long journey as the family of God that took them higher and higher the closer they got to Jerusalem. A long journey taking them higher and higher to the city of God. That was their goal. And they were to praise God at the end of each day. Long journey, higher and higher. City of God is the goal. Praising God at the end of each day. Do you know what? That's a perfect description of the believer's everyday life. Isn't it? That's what we do. That's who we are. The scriptures kind of put this in perspective. Philippians chapter 3, just from the New Testament alone, shows you that some other believing greats had this lesson put into clarity in their lives. Paul talked about his life as a long journey in which he went higher and higher, ultimately with the goal of getting to heaven and seeing the city of God, and he praised God for it along the way. Philippians chapter 3, verses 14 and 20. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the whole psalm right there. I press on in my journey, my faith journey, toward the goal. I'm making an ascent. I'm climbing. I'm pressing on to a prize. It's being with the, in the presence of God, which is the upward call of God. I'm pressing on to heaven, Paul said. I'm going higher and higher to whatever God has for me, Paul said. There's a great prize waiting for me at the end of it. What is, it, what is the prize? The rewards and the crowns of righteousness to every believer that ever steps foot into the heavenly city. Paul knew what he was living for. Because he said in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. So Paul, I think, got this big point. I think God, in an indirect way, made the point through the life of Abraham. In Hebrews 11, which we've just studied recently, it says in verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a journey to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. That's an Old Testament image of the believer's journey to heaven. Canaan, which Abraham was supposed to receive as an inheritance in that great promise, is an image of heaven. It's the place that God has promised as an inheritance to his children. And Abraham went on the journey, it says, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward on his ascent, on his journey to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. I think I'm making my point. I hope you're getting my point. Think about it. One of the biggest ways to learn to trust God is to know that life is a long walk to heaven. It's more about the walk to heaven than it is about your earthly walk here. Now, it's interesting that this would would come into play here because what has been staggered and shattered and bothered and diminished and altered in the last year? Our daily life our human experience, our personal goals, our workplace life, 
our financial security, our physical security, our physical worries over about illness or about not being able to see the doctor because of everything that's going on. I could add a long thing to that list and we've all been through it. And you know what? That all affects our human experience, relationships that are strained over this, fears over what may be coming because of changes in society over this. All of that stuff is on the human plane and in the human walk. Now, don't be insulted, but I'm going to tell you, don't worry about that stuff because your life is a long walk to heaven in which your real life is learning about God in a higher and higher way, going through, by the way, higher and higher trials until you get to the city of God and you're to praise him every night for the privilege of being able to take the journey. Now, if you know that that's your real life, you're going to be a little less stressed and bothered about your everyday life. If you're all wrapped up in the everyday and the human and the secular, and you're not realizing that your true life, as Colossians 3 says, is hidden with Christ in God, you are going to be stressed. You're going to be angry. You're going to be nervous. You're going to be bothered. You're going to be uncertain. But beloved, nothing touches the real life path you ought to be on. In fact, God is using COVID and he's using societal change and everything that keeps you up at night to actually give you a reason to deepen your walk with God. Think about it. I appeal to your heart. I see life's a long walk to heaven. Now he goes into the response to that walk in verses one and two. And he gives us our second piece under this. The second part of right perspective is that people trust in the wrong things along the way. I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag on that one, but I'm going to get into it a little bit more because I love detail and you love me for it. Right? So look at the Psalm now, Psalm 121, one, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is a question and an answer. The writer is letting you into his thinking and he's structuring the psalm around a question and an answer. The question, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? This is hard to understand. A lot of people misinterpret this. You need to understand a little bit about where he was. Dr. Earl Robmacher in his commentary on this psalm and a number of others who agree with him also, I think Dr. Unger as well, note that this psalm was sung on the second to the last day as they were going through the hills surrounding Jerusalem. And Old Testament scholars tell us that as you got closer to, to Jerusalem, the hills were more and more marked by idols' temples. On either side, as you got closer to Jerusalem, the idolaters and the pagans that had infiltrated Israel and that some of the Jews had actually started following built their idol temples in defiance of the God of Israel on the hills surrounding Jerusalem. And they were white, bright in the sun. So when you walked through the hills heading to Jerusalem, you couldn't mistake them. They were right there dotting the hillsides and they were glinting in the sun and they were catching your eye and your eyes were drawn to these idol temples up on the hills. Here's my analysis of where this guy was and why he wrote. He's lifting up his eyes to the hills at the end of his long journey. And he's asking, does my help come from idols instead of my God? 
That's the temptation experience of every believer in life. The harder you go through life, the longer you go through life, and the closer you get to to the ultimate journey, life gets harder. It just does. And we're tempted to maybe give up on the hard road of trusting an invisible God and instead wandering up to the hillsides instead, stopping our journey and choosing an idol from all the idols that everybody else worships and holds on to and saying, this is easier for me. I'm going to worship what I can see. The walk with God is too hard. And so he's faced with that question. Should I continue my journey? Or when I lift up my hills, my eyes to the hills, should I head up to the hillsides and do what the culture's doing? And he answers it in verse 2. Basically, my translation of the Hebrew is, no way. Verse 2. My help comes from the Lord, Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. My help comes from the God who made the hills that the idols are on. So he answers it with that great challenge. Then in verses 3 to 8, he describes just how powerful that God is. And we'll dive into that in a minute. But let me park here on idols for just a second. You might be sitting here saying, or watching me as you view this saying, you know, that's really interesting, Pastor. Your job is to go into a dusty old book and un- uncover Old Testament history and stuff that really doesn't relate to us anymore, but it's interesting. Because you see, Pastor, um, I don't got any grotto in my house. I don't have any little statues on my table. I'm not an idolater. This is dusty Old Testament stuff. Get to my real life. Oh, this is your real life. Because you've got some idols, my friend. So do I. Our whole society has dotted the hillsides with its idols. You know what an idol is? It's not a statue. It's not an image. It's not something you even see. You know what the dictionary definition of an idol is? Idol. Any object of excessive devotion or excessive dependence. Excessive devotion. Really? Huh. Or excessive dependence. Well, if that's the case, there are a lot of idols dotting our lifestyle hillsides. Think about some of the idols that we've, we, we, we are excessively devoted to all the time, unless we kind of hear God's calling. Physical health is an idol for many people. Just take a look at all the infomercials you see on cable or whatever. What are they devoted to? Your physical health some nifty way to cook a meal without having to cook it, or some miracle way to make whatever ails you feel better, or the latest exercise thing that tells you you don't have to build muscle, you just do this special video that costs you 150 bucks. (laughs) Why can they sell all that stuff? Because physical health is an idol, especially in our society. People are doing everything they can to extend it, to enhance it, to beautify it, to brag about it, to show it off. Is physical health an idol in your life? Physical appearance is an idol in the same way. How about your professional track? What's been threatened in COVID for a lot of people? Their job security or their professional life is harder and they're more worried about whether their company at the end of this might downsize and you're going to get outsized. We worry. We We do everything we can. We overwork. We obsess to try and make that idol not totter. 
There'd be our circle of best friends was a deeply held thing to us in life before COVID started and disagreements began. And we've lost some best friends and we grieve and we we think our life will not be the same because relationships are different. Maybe you were worshiping the dimension of friendship. Our children or grandchildren could be an idol to us. How well they turn out, which is really kind of a secret code for how good they make us look. Did that hurt? Because that hurt me. Think about it. Our portfolio, our pension fund, our mutual funds, our retirement accounts, or maybe we're messing around with Bitcoin or whatever, and we're seeing things take off for a moment. Or maybe you've ridden the stock market and you've seen some great things happen and you've got every finger in both hands crossed behind your back. But you're checking it on your phone, app after app, moment after moment. You're obsessing, you're worrying. Maybe you're leveraging stuff you shouldn't leverage because your idol is your idol. Think about it. The degrees you have or the degree you're setting aside, everything is a Christian single and you're not going to worship and you're not involved in fellowship because you're devoting every hour to getting the degree that you know you've got to have. Do you feel a taste of excessive devotion or excessive dependence coming on? I could go on and on, but I'm going to stop the pain there. Now, are any of these things bad in themselves? No. First Timothy 6 says that physical health, professional success, best friends, children and grandchildren, your portfolio and your pension, your financial life, your, finan- your, your professional life, your marriage, even your, even, even your enjoyment of the good things in life are all given by God. And he says they're given by God for you to enjoy and give thanks to God for. But there's a parenthesis there if I was writing that that says, but they're not given to you by God to worship for, to worship and replace him for. And that's what we do. Don't depend on them, folks, because they fail. Jeremiah 3.23, when Jeremiah looked at the idols on the hillsides, he told Israel, the hills are a delusion. Whatever the society wants you to, to trust in and build your life around as an ultimate place of security is a delusion. The only true security, he says, is my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, Yahweh, the great I am. And so I went through that and I put some things back before my God and I admitted how obsessed I've been in this season with protecting things and not looking to him. May the Lord speak to all of our hearts. How can you learn to endure? How can you press on by learning the right perspective on life? And it's a long walk to heaven. The spiritual life is the greatest reality. And that you're tempted to trust in the wrong things along the way. Well, let's get to the second and the last. Second thing you need to do to learn how to trust God and persevere and press on in life is to have the right perspective on God. Now, he shifts from his great declaration, I'm trusting God. I'm not heading up into the hills. I'm staying on my course. And then in verses 3 to 8, He describes how great God is and how well God cares for us and protects us. So there's two understandings here. One is you've got to get the fact that only God is a perfect caregiver. Only God is a perfect caregiver. And secondly, only God is a perfect protector. Now, in order to make all this clear, he teaches a series, he uses a series of figures or word pictures. Verse three, let not your foot, he will not let your foot be moved. Verse 4, he, won't, he who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. Verse 5, the Lord is your shade on your right hand, and so on. Now, a lot of these don't make sense to us. For example, 
Why would it be important for God to be sh- put shade on my right hand? That is odd, odd, odd. Well, these are what are known by the scholars as Hebraisms. In other words, they were figures of speech in the ancient Jewish culture that made sense to them, but may not make sense to us. So we got to go back into Jewish culture. What was Jewish culture? It was an outdoor culture, an agrarian culture, but it was also a warrior culture. All of this will come into play. So the first two Hebraisms, not letting your foot be moved and he who keeps you in neither slumber nor sleep, teach us about God's ability to perfectly care for you. If you're his child, let's take a look at him. First Hebraism, he will not let your foot be moved. And again, people say, that's just kind of quaint and kind of odd. My foot moved. I, I, I just don't get it. Well, that's because you live in a mobile culture where you'd never have to walk anywhere or risk anything as you walk. The Jews lived in a mountainous culture where they had to walk everywhere. There were no roads. There were no safe paths. And they often had to go through mountain passes that were treacherous, that didn't have guardrails or little yellow lines or bike paths. They were narrow paths. And you had one option. If your foot slipped, your body followed and you went down to your death. This is actually an image, in my opinion, of fatality. He's saying God is going to protect you. He's going to protect your very life. He's going to keep you on your journey. When they were going to Jerusalem, going up through the mountainsides, there might have been some perilous passes there. Certainly coming over from the Jericho side there was. And so people were at risk as they journeyed. And God says, in your journey, I'm never going to let you slide off a mountain unless I want to. God's sovereign over the days of your life, my friend. All the days that are ordained for you were written in his book before you were born. People worry about how long we're going to live. Are we going to get through this? Are we going to have a certain health event or whatever? God will not let your foot be moved. Now, that doesn't mean you get to be fatalistic and go out and hang glide every day or whatever. It doesn't mean you don't take care of your health or make good decisions. You don't tempt the Lord your God. But you know that you know that he's in charge of your very life. Now then he goes on. He says, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. (laughs) Again, a lot of people say, okay, that's quaint. It's nice to know. But there's some beauty there. He uses two words. Slumber meant to nod off or momentarily lose attention because you were drowsy. Uh, Sleep means full on dreaming gone sleep, dreaming sleep. It's interesting. He uses both. And he talks about the fact that God will never lose attention over you and he will never completely forget about you and be clueless as to what you need or where you are. Unfortunately, that's not true in human life, is it? I've told you this story before and I'm going to embarrass myself again. When I was a young pastor and we were young parents, we only had two kids at that time, And our second, Audrey, uh, was a little less than two years old. I was pastoring in a a small town in in California, and and it was a Monday. And that was my day off at that time. And I'd had a draining week and just a very fatiguing Sunday, so I was dusted. And uh, it was toward the end of the evening, and I had settled into the den in our house, and I had turned Monday night football on. And I was just starting to recede into that. And I didn't want the world to bother me. I was just finally laying on that couch, watching it out of the corner of my eye. 
My wife walks in and says, listen, I got to go to the store. It's going to take me 30 minutes. And I, I, would you, I'll take Laura, but will you watch Audrey? I rolled my eyes. Not a good behavior. Not good. Not good. But then I fully recovered and I said, sure, sure. No problem. Just bring her in here so I can keep an eye on her in here. So she brings Audrey in. I've got the lights down. I got the TV going. I'm nice and settled in. She leaves and she says, remember, watch her. Don't let her get into anything. I said, no problem, no problem. Audrey being very, did just, she just crawled up on my, I'm laying prone on the couch, right? So I'm laying out this way. Monday night football is that way, dark room. She sits on my knees. I said, this is cool. This is, it's, this is the easiest gig ever. I just know she's on my knees. And if I don't feel she's on my knees anymore, I know she's gone. <laughs> so you know what happened. I started to watch the game, wasn't a really good game, started to get disinterested, and I started to slumber. I started to doze off. But I knew she was fine. The strange thing was, though, that every few minutes, she was just cooing away down there. I know she was just cooing along, and singing. And every few minutes, I felt this light little fluttering of something very light and fine, kind of falling on my hands. But I was slumbering. I was already kind of halfway out. I didn't pay any attention. I'd wake up every few minutes and feel a little bit more fluttering on my hands, but I'd doze off again. Well, I went from slumbering into sleeping, and about a half hour later, Tina comes home, opens the door, takes a look to the left inside the den, and just out of curiosity, since the light was off, she turns the light on, and then she says, What in the world did you do? And I'm jumping out of the couch like a lightning bolt has hit me. And I said, what, what, what? And I looked and Audrey was still there on my knees. But she had gotten one of Laura's little kid's scissors, the safe kind. I'm not an abuser, okay? The safe kind. And she had spent the last 30 minutes restyling her head. (laughs) She had cut everything off from the front, made kind of a little trendy river up that way and then she completely styled the sides styling is a kind word I'll just put it this way the only place she would have looked normal would be downtown Seattle that's basically it (laughs) Tina killed me it literally took months for me to outlive that one because every time we went to church people said what in the world did you do I went way too long on that story. I apologize. (laughs) We can't care for ourselves or others. We'll slumber. We'll lose our attention. We're not able to do that. But the, the imagery here is that unlike us, God will never slumber nor sleep. He'll never take his attention off of you, believer. He'll never lose the ability to make you his total focus. Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He does not faint or grow weary. God can't fall asleep, people. God can't lose attention. He can't diminish his ability to pay attention to you. He will never grow faint or grow weary. And in Psalm 17, 8, it says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Many times in the Bible, the Bible says that that Israel was the apple of God's eye. And by application, you're now God's child and you're the apple of his eye. Again, another Hebraism. What in the world does the apple of an eye mean? Well, it was the way the Hebrews used to refer to the pupil of the eye. But it's interesting. It goes deeper than that. 
The Hebrew word meant the little doll in the eye. And it came from something you've probably experienced. I've experienced it. There are times when the lighting is right, when you walk up close enough to a person and you look them in the eye, you will see your reflection in the pupil of their eye. Some of you are nodding. You've had this experience. That's the way the Hebrews described that. When you're close to a person and their attention is fixed on you, you're reflected in the pupil of their eye and the writer is saying, oh God, you are so close to me. You're so fixated on me that I'm the little doll in your eye and you cannot not see me. You cannot not be with me. You cannot not be paying attention to me. It's, it is divinely impossible for me not to be the apple of your eye. What a comfort. This is a time of where many people feel really alone because of the isolation that has happened because of all that's gone on and what's had to be done. My dear friend, you may feel more alone, but you're the apple of his eye. He will not slumber nor sleep over your life. He's with you to comfort you. Well, he goes on. He used a word there, he who keeps Israel. And then in verse 5, he says, the Lord is your keeper. Six times in this psalm, the word keeps, keeper, or keep is used. And what's the word keeper mean? And again, not like we think of it. Keeper was a Hebrew word, shomer, which meant protector. Our best English translation could be bodyguard. That's God, he says. God is your protector in everything. And then he begins to unstring in verses 5 to 8 how God is a perfect protector. Let's go on. Here's the third Hebraism. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Nobody understands what that means on the first reading. So why does that mean God just kind of casts his shade on my hand? Why, why is that important? Why is my right hand important? I don't get it. Well, you're not from a warrior culture. The Hebrews from a warrior culture. The word shade there meant shadow. Here's how Hebrews lined up in battle. Your sword hand was your right hand, your strong right hand. Your shield hand was your left. The thing an enemy would come to take out first in battle as you were lined up would be your sword hand. He would go for your right hand. And so Hebrews fought in a line like many Romans and others, other military uh, organizations did. You were there with your drawn sword in your right hand and you had a shield in your left. The guy to your right had his shield out and his, his shield was over your right hand. The shade of his shield and the shade of his presence was on your right hand. What it meant was when you couldn't see an attack coming, he would blunt it off for you. And he was close and he was at your right hand. So his very shadow fell over your right hand. You know what he's saying here in the battles of life in the supernatural attacks that come against you as a believer, in everything that may ever be a sudden threat to you, God is so close to you that his shadow is falling over your right hand and he's ready with his mighty shield to blow back and beat down anything that would come at your right hand. That's pretty cool. That's greatly comforting. That's our Lord. Now, this is particularly true when it comes to the life of the soul. 
He says in verse 7, the Lord will keep you. He'll be your shomer. He'll stand at your right side from all evil. And you say, well, I'm not sure I can believe that, Pastor, because you see, God's let some evil into my life. He let evil in the life of someone very dear to me who loved Jesus. How in the world do you explain that? Next phrase, he will keep your life. Translation, there should be or could be soul. God will allow evil by his sovereign allowing plan into your physical life, your financial life, even your mental and emotional life, your relational life. He sometimes allows evil into the circle of the life of his kids, but he will never let it take your life. And that's the life of the soul. There's two dimensions to that. Though you may go through physical evil, even coming up to your physical death, it will not take your soul because your soul is his and you'll step into heaven. But it also means that no matter what comes into your life that's evil or wicked or difficult, he may let it have its run for a while, but it's not going to damage your soul. You can still walk with God through it. You can still have a life within your life. It's beautiful. Next one. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Obviously figurative language. Sun's not going to fall out of the universe on your head. What's he using there? He's saying, listen, God will sovereignly protect you from all events, people and possibilities that you can see during the day in your journey and that you can't see during the night of your journey. God is 24-7 guarding you. Next Hebraism. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. What in the world is that? Well, it's in Deuteronomy 28 when Moses told Israel, if you trust the Lord, he will bless your going out and your coming in. He'll bless your crops. He'll bless your fields. He'll bless your family. He'll enlarge your, your family. He'll bring possessions to you. He'll do everything in your everyday life to give you a blessed, comfortable life. That's what he told Israel. Promised that to Israel, not everybody else but he gave it to them to trust him and test him. So going out and coming in is basically a description of your everyday life. Now we get to your everyday life. Going out was when the sun came up and an Israelite left his tent or he left his house and he went out to farm, went out to sow seed, went out to practice his craft in the village. He went out to earn a living. She went out with the kids to take him to school, to raise them, to care for them. And The coming in was when the sun had set and all life and commerce was done for the day and you came back in as the lamps were lit. And he says, from your going out in the morning to your coming in in the evening, I'm going to be over that too. God does care about your everyday life. He does care about your physical life. He does care about your financial life. He does care about your home life. He does care about your professional life. He does care about what you do from sunrise to sunset. I basically say this is a verse that says, All your garage door days are covered. Garage door days? Yeah, that's basically what this is today. What's the first thing your neighbor sees in the morning at your house? Old garage door flying up. That's the only time they know you're alive in my neighborhood. Nobody talks to each other. (laughs) I lived in a place where I had a neighbor move, and I didn't know they'd changed until I realized the cars were different. I mean, it's just weird. But he's basically saying, listen, when the garage door flips up in the morning and you're on the way to the job, or you got the kids tucked in the car and you're heading to daycare, or you're going to a doctor's appointment 
for the fourth time that month because something's going on and it seems as you're older now that your whole life revolves around the doctor and your kitchen table. That's it. When the garage door goes up and you go into your day, God is with you all the way, all the way to when you get home at late at night at eight o'clock and you got a couple bags from Fred's and some stuff from the pharmacy and you're hauling your kids back because you, you made the people at daycare wait late. You got the death stare from them as you came in. You know what I'm saying? God says, I'm over that too. I'll keep you. I'll protect your going out and your coming in. Whatever you need, I've got this. What a great promise. Last one. From this time forth and forevermore. What does that mean? Time forth was a way of saying tomorrow. He says, I'm not only doing it today, I'll do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day in your life until finally when you face the last moment of your life and you step into heaven and you step from, from the now into the forevermore, I'll keep you there too. You need not worry about what that last moment will be for you. When you step into forevermore, I'm going to keep you. That's why David said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord until God finds some fault with me and throws me out. What version are you reading? The reverse standard perversion or something? What, what Bible are you reading? No, he says, I will, li- I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Well, I close now. Over time, I apologize. We're journeying through a season. We're wondering, can we really trust God through it? The answer, oh yes. Perfect caregiver. And the right kind of a perspective on life helps. It's a long journey to heaven, casting idols down along the way and staying faithful to God but he'll care for you along the way and he'll protect you because he is your shomer in Hebrew, your protector, your dread champion, your bodyguard. 